Okay, sorry about that. All right, so uh, last class we got up to around here. Why aren't you changing? what happens when you use a PC. Okay. So this is about where we got up to last class. We talked about some of the functional groups you're going to need to have some productive conversations in this course. We talked about some of these that I thought were probably more important than others. Certainly a lot of the ones that have al oxygens in them, uh, aldehydes, ketones, alcohols, methyl groups, amino groups, some others, but certainly those ones, phosphoryl groups, disulfides, sulfhydrals. We talked about kind of the building blocks of a lot of um, major classes of biomolecules. Uh, amino acids, some various amino acids. We're going to talk about those, or you're going to hear about those next class. The components of nucleic acids, the bases and the sugars, and then some components of lipids. Uh, and then there's the special group, the phosphate, which links both of these. So we got to about here, I think, last class. So I just want to give a couple of things to, a couple of reminders about what you covered in your first year chem. Um, a couple of things that are, I want to point out that are going to recur in some upcoming lectures. You have this, this is your geometry around a carbon atom. I remember in my first year uh, chemistry, the professor said if I can ask you to remember one thing in first year chem, it's four bonds to carbon. That is one of the few rules that generally isn't broken. Uh, here's a carbon atom with four bonds coming out of it. And when they're all single bonds, you've got this tetrahedral, what we call this tetrahedral geometry around the carbon, right? They basically make a pyramid, right? They've basically arranged themselves to be maximally far apart from one another. Okay? And when you have a single bond between two carbon molecules, you can have rotation around that bond. Okay? So there's basically uh, not a whole lot impeding these two carbons from rotating with, one, with respect to one another, so long as the things that the carbons are bound to allow, they, they don't get in each other's way. Uh, that's different than, say, a carbon-carbon double, double bond. Carbon double bond. Uh, the geometry of a carbon-carbon double bond is planar, and there is not rotation around a double bond. Basically, these are fixed, so these two carbons cannot rotate with respect to one another. And that's going to come up uh, a little bit in a few lectures when we start talking about peptide bonds. So uh, we should talk a little bit about the different types of bonds you see in chemical systems. Uh, within a molecule, we talked about covalent bonds and how those are basically rigid, strong bonds. That, and they're not going to be broken unless an enzyme, say, makes a bond or breaks a bond. And often that's what's happening in chemical reactions. You're basically breaking down macromolecules, building up macromolecules in an enzymatic reaction, doing things that normally would be very energetically unfavorable. And so breaking and making covalent bonds is typically not easy. And so you need an enzyme to do that. So this is basically what we talk about with respect to bonds within a biological molecule. So within uh, a strand of DNA or within a protein, those are all, all those amino acids are linked by covalent bonds. Between biological molecules, you're going to have these non-covalent bonds, and there's various types. You have ionic interactions. Those are, we also call those salt bridges. So basically, a group that has a positive charge and a group that has a negative charge, like the positive sodium ion and a negative chloride ion and a salt crystal, that's going to be joined by an ionic bond. Uh, having said that, those can be solvated, right? So you can take uh, salt and dissolve it in water, and it dissolves, right? Whereas you can't really dissolve 
if you dissolve glucose, it doesn't come apart because glucose is held together by covalent bonds. So you have ionic interactions. There are van der Waals forces. These are very kind of low energy transient interactions, often between uh, non-charged things like methyl groups. Uh, they are pretty weak. Um, and then you have hydrogen bonds, which are stronger. This is a temporary non-covalent bond that goes between uh, a group that has a negative charge and a group that has a hydrogen on it that has a partial positive charge. Okay? And the classic thing you think of when you think of a hydrogen bond is the bonds that occur between the nucleotide bases in a DNA double-stranded helix. Okay? Those can be, when they're additive, they can be quite, they can make up for quite an amount of, of energy. And so, but they're not permanent. They're not what we, what I mentioned about the covalent bonds. And the classic thing we think about with respect to double-stranded DNA is if you heat DNA, the two strands melt apart because they're only held together with hydrogen bonds and they can be overcome by, by heat. Okay? So these non-covalent bonds that happen between biological molecules, they're weaker than covalent bonds. But often the interaction that you have between two biological molecules, uh, because they're additive, because there's not just one, so you can imagine all the hydrogen bonds that occur between the bases of two strands of DNA, when you add them all up, well, that DNA double-stranded double helix at room temperature is very stable. Okay, so you have this additive effect sometimes. Yeah, what's up? Well, I mean, uh, I'm going to say yes for the purpose of this course. I mean, according to the table, they are weaker, right? So we're talking about 50 kcal per mole for a covalent bond and 1 to 20 kcal per mole for an ionic interaction. You can have ion interactions, which are very, very strong. Typically, the ones we're going to talk about this course are not so strong. Okay? They're often between charged groups on, say, amino acids. Um, the important thing is that also they can be solvated, right? You can basically have water dissolve them, which in a covalent bond doesn't typically happen. So for the purpose of the course, we're going to talk about in that in those terms. Okay. So this is uh, some other examples of those uh, interactions. So we're talking about these non-covalent bonds. This is basically a scheme of a hydrogen bond. It can happen between water molecules. Here's a water molecule. Because the oxygen is more electronegative than the hydrogen. It, although the electrons in this bond are shared between the hydrogen and the oxygen, the oxygen's a bit greedy. It tries to pull those electrons towards its more electronegative uh, nucleus. And so basically, the oxygen carries a partial negative charge. Because the electrons have been pulled away from the hydrogens, they carry a partial positive charge. And so you've got these partial charges on these two groups. And they can interact with one another. The partial negative charge on this oxygen can interact with the partial negative charge on this hydrogen. Sorry. The partial negative charge on this oxygen can interact with the partial positive charge on this hydrogen. And you can form a bond between them. Okay? And so you get this interaction between these types of molecules, but they're not as strong as covalent bonds. And then you've got these various types of van der Waals forces, uh, dipole, other types of dipole-dipole interactions that don't involve hydrogens. Okay? So this partial positive charge on this uh, carbon, it's going to be very weak because carbons don't really like to carry charges. But they can have this interaction between, say, this carbon positive charge, this negative charge on this oxygen. Uh, again, also, you can have uh, partial positive charges on these hydrogens when they're interacting with basically as a methyl group with this carbon. And they can interact this. Uh, so basically, sorry, um, I probably said that. Uh, this negative charge on this oxygen can pull, um, no, sorry, a negative charge over here pulls the, uh, the charge away from these hydrogens such that they acquire a partial positive charge, and that's going to cause a dipole-induced dipole interaction. And then you talk about these London dispersion forces. You've got these two methyl groups. They really, carbons and hydrogens don't induce dipoles, but at any moment in time, there may be more hydrogen, maybe more negative charge on one of these hydrogens than on others. And so you get this, basically, these, what they call these London dispersion forces. Again, they're very, very weak because hydrogens and carbons, when they're covalently bound to one another, don't really like to have charge on them. But at any given moment, you can have an unequal distribution of charge. And so then you get these interactions between these ones. So these are all very weak, non-covalent 
forces. But nonetheless, when they're additively summed up over the course of a whole molecule, you can get some significant interactions. Sorry if I'm speeding through this a bit. I'm trying to make up a bit for last class. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit more about water today. There's a lot of review for you, I think, in this class from first-year chem, or at least there should be, even high school chem. Why is water so important? Why do we devote a whole lecture to it? Well, uh, some things that make water important. Um, we're going to be talking about folds of proteins today, or a little bit, uh, and in the next two lectures. Uh, the fold that a protein takes, and the fold that any biological molecule takes, is largely governed by the interaction of that molecule with water. So everything in our cells is solvated, right? There's, it's, occur it's occurring in an aqueous environment. And so basically, biological molecules were, will fold or orient themselves based on that interaction with water. Okay? Um, so again, the chemical reactions that we're going to be talking about, the enzymatic reactions, the majority of biochemical reactions we're going to be talking about in this course occur in water. Often water is a reagent or a product in the chemical reactions that occur. So you have condensation reactions where two molecules come together and give off a water molecule. You have hydrolysis reactions where you've got a covalent bond and a water molecule is added across that bond to break a bond. So water is often actually part of the chemical reaction. And then this shouldn't be understated, right? So water is at the center of life. Its oxidation is at the heart of photosynthesis. Without photosynthesis, most of the energy we work with on this planet wouldn't function. And so that's one of the reasons why when they're looking out into space and they're trying to figure out whether there's life on other systems, the first thing they look for is water because we're not aware of how life really happens in the absence of it. So we talked a little bit about uh, kind of this asymmetry of water. So uh, this is the way, the way we draw a water molecule in 3D. When we draw it on the board, we usually draw it in the shape of a V. Okay? This asymmetry of water okay, creates a significant dipole moment, right? So if we're talking about, say, carbon dioxide, which we usually draw like this, right, this may have a partial negative charge, but because they cancel each other out, okay, we don't really think of that as having a dipole moment. But that's different than water, right? Because they're asymmetric, these vectors don't cancel each other out. And so that makes water very kind of um, high, what we call hydrophilic. It's a very good solvent. There's anything that is charged really likes to dissolve in water. It's one of the best, if not the best, solvent we know of. Okay? And so this is an important concept to bear in mind with respect to how, again, biological molecules interact or with each other and how they interact in the aqueous environment of a cell because you're going to have many functional groups on biological molecules that are charged, other ones that are uncharged, and then the way that they interact with one another is going to be largely dictated by that. So we've got hydrophilic compounds, which are happy in water, and then nonpolar compounds, which we call hydrophobic, which do not like to interact with water. They're, they don't dissolve in water, and they're much happier interacting with themselves than with water. This is the classic example we talk about is Salad dressing, right? Like oil and vinegar. You know, if you just leave it in the fridge, they separate with one another. The oil is hydrophobic and the vinegar is hydrophilic. So we have hydrogen bonds occurring between charged compounds. Uh, comp sorry, not charged necessarily, but polar compounds uh, in biological systems. They can form hydrogen bonds with each other. They can form hydrogen bonds with water. Okay, so an example... Here we have this basically a lipid molecule. Uh, this is an example of a hydrophobic, inter a hydrophobic uh, compound where uh, what happens, and this is uh, something I'm going to be talking about for a few slides, is this idea of the hydrophobic effect. Okay, so when you have a... This is so much easier when I use my laptop. I'm going to ignore you. I'm being asked to put in my username for something, and I don't know what it is. Uh, so we've got this lipid molecule, okay? The lipid, the hydrophobic region is diagrammed here in, um, 
yellow. This looks like a phospholipid. It's got a blue thing on the top here, which I'm presuming is a phosphate. And what happens is the water molecules around the hydrophobic part, the lipid part, the fat part, they really don't want to interact with the lipid, right? They don't want to, because they're hydrophilic and the lipid part's hydrophobic. And so what they do is that they form this cage around the, the water molecules interact with each other in a very ordered way such that they don't have to interact with the lipid part, okay? And so this is very entropically disfavored. You don't, water doesn't like to become ordered. And so this is thermodynamically unfavored. But because it's so difficult for them to interact with the lipid, this is what happens. Okay, so the lipid molecule forces the surrounding water molecules to become highly, highly ordered. To prevent that from happening, lipid molecules will cluster with each other. Okay, so that you've got this phospholipid here, and down here they're interacting with each other, and that minimizes the number of water molecules that need to become ordered around it. Okay? And so this is why when you have phospholipids in cells that make up membranes, this is basically what orders membranes to form. Right? You basically have phospholipids, these lipid molecules with these phosphate heads. The lipid moieties interact with one another and form a membrane. And then if you have enough of them, you have what's called a micelle, which is basically what looks like kind of a bubble in which all the lipid molecules are pointing in towards the middle, all the phospho or hydropho hydrophilic groups, the phospho groups are pointing out. They're much happier interacting with water because they're charged. And so this can drive formation of micelles very nicely. And if you have, again, you subsequently further increase the proportion of the um, lipids, then you get, uh, instead of a micelle, you'll get a bilayer, which is basically a cell membrane. Okay, so this is basically what I showed you uh, I was talking about in terms of a phosphate group. It could also be a carboxylic acid group, like what you have here. This is basically an amphiphilic compound. So an amphiphilic compound is something that, like a phospholipid or this molecule here that's got this carboxylic acid group. This is basically a fatty, what looks like a fatty acid. So this charged group is happy interacting with water, and this alkyl group, this hydrophobic alkyl group, is unhappy interacting with water. This amphiphilic term is something we, amphiphilic is a term we use for a compound that has both a hydrophilic part and a hydrophobic part, okay? So there's this polar section, this hydrophilic part, and a nonpolar section, this hydrophobic part. And they're going to arrange themselves in space such that they maximize the hydrophilic components with water and maximize the hydrophobic components with each other, right? And so that's basically what's going to cause formation of micelles or bilayers. That's what's going to drive it. And this is what I talked about um, on the last slide, this idea of the water molecules caging around one another, maximizing their hydrogen bonds with each other such that they don't have to interact. Because normally water molecules, the interactions that water molecules make with one another is very transient. Okay? They make hydrogen bonds with each other, very transient interactions. And that's highly entropic. That's favored, right? That's a lot of chaos. But this is not so chaotic, right? The water's caging around this lipid side chain, and so as a result, uh, this is disfavored, and you'd be much happier if this hydrophobic bit was interacting with something else that was hydrophobic. And that's going to come up a lot when we, or that concept, or that thinking at least, when we start talking about what drives protein folding, that's going to come up again. So here are some examples of some hydrogen bonds that form links between functional groups and biological systems. I already talked about these hydrogen bonds. These are the bonds that occur between the bases, complementary bases of DNA. Here's thymine. Here's adenine. You can imagine that this adenine molecule, or this adenine nucleotide is part of a strand of DNA. This thymine group is on an antiparallel strand of DNA in a double helix. And the bonds that hold them together are, are these hydrogen bonds. Okay? So you've got this oxygen group here which will carry a partial negative charge. Uh, this hydrogen is very happy having a partial positive charge because it's linked to a nitrogen. A good, thing, a good rule of thumb to bear in mind is that uh, hydrogens that are bound to oxygens or nitrogens are happy to participate in hydrogen bonds. So this hydrogen is happy to participate in a hydrogen bond. Uh, do I have an alcohol group in here somewhere? Um, yeah, this, well, 
This hydrogen is happy to participate in a well, this hydrogen is happy to participate in a hydrogen bond because it's bound to an oxygen. These hydrogens on these carbons are not so happy to interact with hydrogen bonds. Okay? You don't really get these partial positive, partial negative charges on hydrogens that are bound to carbons. Okay? So whenever you see a hydrogen bound to a nitrogen or a hydrogen bound to an oxygen, uh, that's going to at least a single bond. Uh, no, sorry. Uh, sorry, strike that. Um, this hyd a hydrogen bound to an oxygen or nitrogen is going to be happy to have a partial positive charge on it because the um, associated group is going to have that uh, unequal distribution of charge between them. And that's not so much the case for a hydrogen that's on a carbon. Okay? So hydrogens on carbons don't really make hydrogen bonds. And so here we've got this hydrogen that's attached to this nitrogen. That's going to make a hydrogen bond with this nitrogen. And then this hydrogen that's attached to this nitrogen, that's going to make a hydrogen bond with this oxygen. So you're going to have these happy hydrogen bonds here. Other examples, you've got groups in proteins. So this would be the C double bond O within an amino acid. Uh, then the amino group somewhere else in the protein on this amino acid. And these, this hydrogen bond will be an intramolecular hydrogen bond within the protein that contributes to the native fold. They also have interactions with water around it. So there's multiple examples of these kind of hydrogen bonds in biological systems. We talked about how they're non-covalent, though. You can break them or denature them by heat, often by high salt also. Okay? By throwing a lot of charge in there, it's going to compete for these polar groups, and you're going to lose those hydrogen bonds. Okay, so that talks, I'm going to talk a little bit now about kind of pH and buffering. So before I get into that, are there any questions about kind of this idea of water as a polar molecule and hydrogen bonds and the difference between a covalent and a non-covalent interaction? Yeah. Hydrogen bonds are? Fluorines. So the question is, can hydrogen bonds form with fluorines? Probably. I'm not as familiar with that. Yeah. We don't really use fluorine in biological systems. So it's, just, it's just been decades since I've thought about it. <laughs> yeah. Why does it not just bounce off? So if I, if I understand your question, so if you've got this caging of waters around the hydrophobic bit, uh, why, don't, why don't they just like, not interact with it? Or why does it cage around it? Why is it compelled to form a cage around it? I think, to, I think to avoid interacting with it, it becomes, anytime you impose something on anything, you're imposing a form of order on it, right? To avoid interacting with the hydrophobic part, there must be some order that's imposed on the water. And we refer to that as kind of the caging effect. I think that's the best way I can, from a theoretical standpoint that I'm not really an expert on. Maybe. That may, I, I don't know if I can know that for sure, but that may, could be, yeah. But I mean, functionally, the important thing is to understand this concept of water around hydrophobic is entropically disfavored, right? Okay. High salt. In general. In general, hydrogen bonds will be melted by high salt or, or heat. One more. Oh, thank you. I mean, thank you. That's more about the... It's more about the concept of the, of the dipole moment. Yeah. 
Okay, so I'm going to run out of time. Yeah. All right. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about water being weakly ionizable. Right? So that means water can carry a charge, but not very well. There's, it doesn't charge, it doesn't, so basically, normally we think of as water as H2O, right? However, water can become, at a certain rate, a very low rate, H3O. Okay? So this is a um, water molecule that has picked up a proton. Right? So now this is basically H3O, which carries a positive charge. Uh, we shouldn't think of, so th this is actually the more accurate way of, when we draw acid in chemical reactions, we usually draw H+. Right? But that's actually, that doesn't happen very much. That H plus is never really floating around so much. It's usually attached to a water molecule, and H3O plus is the more accurate way of drawing it. And that proton very quickly, it's never shared on one water molecule. It's always jumping around between water molecules. Okay? So we call that process proton hopping. Okay? So we're going to talk a little bit about this idea of buffering and, and pH. I think this is a review for a lot of you. So how do we describe this ionization of water chemically? Okay, so we can draw an equilibrium reaction, as you've covered already in your chem classes. So the hydronium, the hydroxyl, and the water are in equilibrium. They can be described basically by this equilibrium equation, bearing in mind that we don't really ever have this. As soon as you make this, it goes on another water molecule and makes this H3O. But for the purpose of simplicity, we're going to draw it out like this. So we've got this equilibrium equation where we have H plus and hydroxyl minus over water. So if we know the abundance of these, we can start doing some interesting equilibrium equations. Uh, to do that, we're going to talk, okay, what's the molarity of pure water? Well, um, water is a molar mass of 18, on the order of 18 grams per mole. Uh, that's the way that they defined a kilogram. It's water is 1,000 grams per liter. And so if you take the molar mass of water and this value, and you work out the math, you get a molarity of water. Water is, 50, water is 55 molar water, basically. Um, so we know that there is a very negligible amount of water that's ionized at any given time. So we're basically going to take this, we're going to cheat a tiny, tiny, tiny bit, and we're going to take this um, value, this 55.5 molar, and we're going to put it in our equilibrium equation, okay, KQ is this times this over the concentration of water. We know that the ion con conductivity of water is 1 times 10 to the minus 14. That means the product of the hydrogen concentration and the uh, hydroxyl concentration, or the proton concentration, or the hydronium concentration times the hydroxyl concentration must always equal 1 times 10 to the minus 14. If the proton concentration and the hydroxyl concentration are the same, well then the, you know, this must equal this, therefore the, bless you, the proton concentration must be 1 times 10 to the minus 7. Okay, so now we have a concentration of both of these, where the amount of free hydronium and hydroxyl are identical, and we give that a definition. We call that neutral. We call that neutral pH, and we've got this equation for neutral pH, which is the minus log of the um, proton concentration. That should be relatively familiar to you, okay? And biological molecules in living systems have evolved to, you know, you're going to have functional groups that may become protonated or deprotonated depending on the pH. Since most biological systems occur at what we would call neutral pH, meaning on the order of between pH 6.5 and pH 8, then uh, biological molecules have evolved to acquire the right shape at that pH. And so you can also get misfolding or imperfect structures of biological molecules if you change the pH too much. Okay? Basically, things that were not protonated are going to start getting protonated. If you raise the pH, if you make it too acidic, if you make it too basic, things that were protonated are going to start getting deprotonated. And you're going to start making hydrogen bonds where you were making them, or breaking hydrogen bonds where you had them, breaking or making salt bridges, and now you, what it, molecule you're interested in is not going to fold correctly anymore. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So, I mean, we could do this if you want. Uh, what's the hydrogen ion concentration for gastric juice? pH 1.8. What's the pH for tomato juice? Um, 
hydrogen ion concentration 5 times 10 to the minus 5. I'm not going to really do this because we're going to do one in a, little, in, a, in a few slides, I think, because I think this is basic to the level of, um, if this is new to you, then you may want to think about probably a different course. I, mean, I think this is pretty basic uh, high school and first year chem. Okay. All right, so we're going to talk about other acids and bases, though. Okay? Water is not the only thing that can donate a proton. Right? Any acid-base reaction, according to Bronsted-Lowry, can be described as something that has a proton, donates that proton to water to become hydronium, and basically this becomes a Bronsted-Lowry. Uh, well, this is a Bronsted-Lowry acid, this is a Bronsted-Lowry base. Okay? So HA describes any molecule that can ionize to give a proton, and so HA and A- make up a conjugate acid-base pair. So instead of the water equilibrium reaction we talked about a few slides ago, we can rewrite this also as an equilibrium constant. So this is basically a reversible reaction, which we can write out in this way. Since we know the water concentration, that there may be changes in these components, the non-H2O component, but by and large, the H2O component is going to overwhelmingly stay about 55.5. So we just cheat again a little bit. And we put that in there. We drop this H2O value from the equilibrium equation. And instead of this standard equilibrium constant, we talk about this Ka. We've modified K, this uh, uh, acid equilibrium constant, in which it's assumed we're in water, and that the water concentration is there, or about 55.5 molar. And now we get this simplified equilibrium equation. And this is a very useful term, okay, this idea of Ka, right? This is the term that can be used to describe any Bronsted-Lowry acid-base pair. And it's a, basically a description of how acidic that pair is, okay? So just as um, uh, neutral pH was the pH where there was no net charge, the pH of sorry, the concentration of the acid component and the concentration of the base component was identical, and that happens to be at pH 7 for water, okay? Any Bronsted-Lowry base, acid-base conjugate pair has a different um, hydrogen ion or hydronium ion concentration at which it will be net uncharged. There's going to be an equal amount of the charged component and an equal amount of the uncharged component. And so, for example, we've got uh, acetic acid, right? Here's acetic acid. What we can do is we can take, just as we did the pH, which is the negative log of the hydrogen ion concentration, we can take the negative log of the Ka and get this term called the pKa. This is basically uh, the pH at which, so for acetic acid, it's 4.76. This is the pH at which the protonated uh, version, this CH3C double bond OH, is exactly the same concentration as the CH3, the, um, so this is acetic acid, this is acetate, this is missing the hydrogen, it's donated its proton, and so if you've got acetic acid and you're at pH 7, it will all be basically in this form, right? It will have given up its, the pH is now too high, it'll have given up its protons and will all be in this form, but if you go down to pH 2, then at that point the hydrogen ion concentration is too high, it's going to, this is going to completely disappear, it's all going to become protonated and it's all going to be in this acetic acid form. Okay? So the pKa for acetic acid, this 4.76, is the pH at which you have exactly the 50% of this and 50% of this. And every weak acid base in biological systems has a pKa associated with it. And by knowing the pKa of your particular conjugate acid-base pair, you can calculate, as we're going to do, you can calculate what proportion of that acid-base pair is in the protonated form and the deprotonated form. Okay? How do you figure out the pKa of a given acid? Well, you can do a titration, which I think a lot of people have done in this room. Basically what we're doing is, in this case, we're again taking acetic acid. Uh, we start at very, very low pH, say pH 1. Okay, so at pH 1, it's going to be entirely in this form, right, the protonated form. 
and you start adding hydroxyl base. You're starting adding a base equivalent, like sodium hydroxide or potassium hydroxide. Okay? So that's going to make it more and more and more basic until what happens is you start getting kind of close to the pKa. And what happens then is the base that you're adding is going to start pulling protons off of this uh, hydrogen, right? At this point, when you're adding base, right, all you're going to be doing is removing protons from solution because you're not close enough to the pKa of the acetic acid to start pulling protons off of it yet. And so what happens is you start pulling protons out of solution and the pH starts uh, right, going up. It starts going up, becomes more basic. But as you get around the pKa, you start pulling protons off of acetic acid instead of taking them out of solution. And what happens then, as you're adding more and more base, the pH isn't changing so much anymore. You're not, the pH, remember, the pH is the amount of protons in the water. And what's happening around the pKa is that instead of pulling protons out of the water, you're pulling protons out of the acetic acid. And so basically, we call this the buffering region, in and around one pH unit away from the pKa of, of the weak acid base pair you're talking about, you're going to start getting this uh, inflection in your curve of pH until you've pulled all the protons off. Once you've pulled all the protons off, well then acetic acid can't donate any more protons, and now as you add more and more base, you're going back to pulling protons out of water, and the pH is going to start shooting up again. Okay? So we call this basically this phenomenon, and we call this buffering. Okay, what's happening is uh, this weak acid-base pair is keeping the pH of the environment kind of stable. Okay, because, and, but that only works around the pKa of the acid-base pair you're talking about. So if you're asking acetic acid to buffer a system at pH not 8, it's not going to happen. At pH 8, already all of the acetic acid has, lo has lost all its protons. Likewise, at pH 1, the acetic acid is completely protonated. You can't put any more protons on it. And so it's really only around this buffering region, which we assign to be on the order of one pH unit below and above the, the pK of your weak acid-base pair that you're going to get this buffering effect. Okay? And that is a very important function in biological systems. A lot of chemical reactions create protons or soak up protons. But you don't want the pH of the cell to change. And so there's a lot of molecules that act as buffers within the cell. And when we do chemical reactions in the lab using biochemistry, we always add buffers to our systems to keep, keep the pH constant. Again, if the pH changes too much, things are going to start breaking down in the cell. Things are going to not fold correctly. They're going to denature. So it's important to have buffers around. So again, I think you guys have come across this already, but we'll talk about it a little bit. The overall pH of an environment is shaped by the concentration of acids and bases, their relative strengths. We describe this mathematically by the Henderson-Hesselbach equation. So the pH of your system, okay, is going to be a function of the pKa of your weak acid base that's present and the concentration of the varying acid-base pairs in that, for that particular acid. So we take that and we take the log of it, we add that to the pKa and we'll get the pH of the system. Okay? So for example, what's the pH of a lactic acid solution that's 60% lactate, 40% lactic acid, the pKa for lactic acid is 3.86. So do we want to do that? We can do that if you want. Get that right? Okay. So this is 3.86 plus. Now, we don't really need to know the molarity, okay? We could know the molarity of the acetate and acetic acid form. We could do that. But what's important is the proportion, right? It's the proportion between them. So if I just say it's 40% uh, lactic acid and 60% acetate, well, that means it's going to be. I could just do it this way, 60 over 40, okay. which is 1.5. Do I have that right? What's that? Oh, I'm missing the log. Thank you. Okay, so this is 3.86 plus the log 
of 1.5. Someone want to help me out with that? 4.04? That sound about right? And that makes sense, right? So if you've got a little bit more of the lactate form, that means you're going to be a little bit basic compared to the pH of the pKa. And there are, if you want to practice this, there are exercises in your text that you could have a go if you want to brush up on that. So in biological systems, there are weak acids that can buffer the pH of the solution. And again, this, there's this idea of the plus minus one pH unit around the pKa where you're going to get effective buffering. Okay? Once you get past that, you're breaking the buffer, so to speak. And there's no more protons to give or protons to take anymore. The biological buffers that happen in cells, phosphate ion, carbonate ion, proteins, peptides. You guys know what carbonate is, right? This is basically Tums sodium bicarbonate, uh, what you have is this uh, conjugate acid base pair, this H2CO3. It's got a pKa of 6.04, and it goes from H2CO3 to HCO3 and a proton. This is what is most responsible for buffering the blood. Okay? So if your blood becomes more acidic, if you've got an excess of protons, then the protons here will join with an HCO3 to form H2CO3, and then you in that way, you keep the pH of the blood around 7.4. If the blood becomes more basic, you're going to move it the other way. You're going to uh, take H2CO3 to donate a proton to maintain the pH. Now, this is a little bit counterintuitive to what I already told you. We told, talked about how the buffering capacity of a weak acid-base pair is around 1 pH unit off of the pKa. The pH of blood, 7.4, is at the kind of the edge of that, right? How does that work then? How can that, how can carbonate buffer well when its pKa, 6.04, is basically one pH unit away? It's at the limit of being broken, okay? The answer is basically that this is not what we'd call a closed system, okay? So at pH 7.4, we're going to have mostly this form, right? The HCO3 plus, uh, the HCO3 form of this conjugate acid-base pair because at a basic pH, it's going to be pulling protons off of this. At pH 7.4, you're going to have a lot more of this than you have of this, okay? But this is not a closed system. You can lose this, okay, because what happens is that this interconverts with CO2, okay? So you've got CO2 as a gas which is in the lungs, which will dissolve into the blood. CO2 will join up with water to make H2CO3, and then you're back to this conjugate acid-base pair up here, okay? So basically, you can... If you've got too much or too little of H2CO3, that can be basically shed off by it converting to carbon dioxide and being exhaled out of the, out of the blood, out of the lungs. Okay? So even though you've got a lot more of this than this, if this equilibrium gets thrown off too much, basically you can replenish or you can, you can basically game the system to change the amount of H2CO3 in the system by its interconversion with CO2 to be able to keep this buffering system intact. Okay. We'll talk a little bit about what we call polyprotic acids. So another very important buffer in biological systems is phosphate. Okay. So phosphate ion, phosphate ion exists as many forms. Okay. There's PO3, there's PO-3, HPO-2, um, H, sorry, HPO minus 2, H2PO minus, and H3PO4. They're all O4, but it's basically how many hydrogens do you have on this phosphate ion, this PO4? None? Well, then your charge is minus 3, and then you can put on subsequently 1, 2, or 3 protons on that, and basically change from a minus 3 charge to an uncharged molecule. And each of these acquisitions of a hydrogen ion can uh, basically, it has its own pKa, right? So the transition between the PO3 minus form and the HPO minus 2 form is here, and then going between HPO minus 2 to H2PO minus is here, and, and so on over here. And so basically, 
phosphate is a really good buffer for a biological system because basically over the pH range 2-ish to 12-ish, it can buffer all of these, right? It's maybe not quite so good in the middle of these ones, but it can, all right? So this is a fun question you can do. Um, normally I would give, assign this to you and do it next class, but I'm not here next class. So um, what I'm going to do is assign it to you, and then I'm going to post the solution on it, on the Moodle, either Thursday or later in the week. Okay? This one is pretty straightforward, and I'll take you through how to do it. Okay? What is the final pH when 10 mils of one molar hydrochloric acid? Here's your first clue. So hydrochloric acid is a strong base, strong acid or a weak acid? It's a strong acid. So basically what I'm doing is, by putting in hydrochloric acid, I'm putting in 10 mils of one molar pure protons. Okay? This is going to completely dissociate into protons and chloride ions. Okay? So I'm just adding 10 mils of one molar protons to the system. I've got one liter of one molar phosphate buffer. It's at pH 7.2. So here's your second clue. The pKa, this pKa here is 7.2. right? Therefore, at pH 7.2, I'm going to have exactly 50% of this and 50% of this, right? Because I'm at the pKa. So you should be able to uh, take one molar, sorry, 10 mils of one molar protons and add them to this to make this, right? If you add protons to this, you're going to make this, right? They used to be 50-50, but they're not going to be 50-50 anymore because you're going to add all these protons to this to make this, and you're going to have a new ratio between them, and you're going to do Henderson-Hesselbach to calculate your new pKa. That one's relatively straightforward. And I'll post a solution for how to do that. This is a little trickier. We'll see if you have fun with this one. If you think it out, you should hopefully be able to to get it. But what I'm doing now is I'm adding the same amount of protons, but there's less buffer here. What you're going to find is that there's more protons than buffer. What happens then? It's a little bit fun and tricky, but see how you do. And um, so I'll post a solution for it, and then if people want to discuss it more, uh, there's a discussion thread on the Moodle. We can talk it out there, too. So we're going to move from pKa's and pH to isoelectric points now, okay, which is a variant of pKa. It's, these are all kind of similar themes on the same thing. So this is your classic amino acid. Okay? This is the generalized structure of amino acid. You put amino acids together to make proteins. This is the monomer subunit of a protein. It's got an amino group. And it's got a carboxylic acid group, and it has an R group. The R group is going to change from one amino acid to another, right? So this could be any amino acid, because we just have R here, right? This version of the amino acid can donate a proton such that this carboxylic acid group becomes a um, CO minus group. And now this CO minus combined with this plus charge on the amino group means that this group has no net charge, right? On the other hand, we can then, at very high pH, get this proton off of this NH3 group and make NH2. So now we've got a minus group here and no counteracting charge here, so this one is, is minus one, okay? So this form of this, the, the, the term we use for an amino acid that has this form is called a Zwitterion, okay? Uh, a zwitterion is basically, uh, and, this is, and this is the form of amino acid that exists in cells at physiological pH. It's a protonated amino group and a deprotonated carboxylic acid group. This is a molecule that has both a negative charge and a positive charge on it, but no net charge, right? The net charge of this, same as we have up here, the net charge on this molecule is zero. Right? One negative charge and one positive charge equals zero. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have charge. The net charge is zero, 
but it is still a charged molecule. Okay? And so that we use this term zwitterion for a group that has no net charge, but is still charged. Okay? And this zwitterion can act as an acid. It can accept, uh, sorry, it can donate a proton from the NH3 group to become NH2, or it can act as a base. It can accept the proton on this carboxylic acid group. Okay? So it can act as either an acid or a base. Amino acids can also be titrated, right? We talked about titrations of acids and bases. Well, amino acids are weak acids. That's why they're called amino acids, right? So we've got, uh, this is our, so this, which amino acid is this? Who wants to help? Well, it says right here, cheating. It's glycine, right? The, when the R group of uh, an amino acid is just another hydrogen, that amino acid is glycine, right? The R group for glycine is just H. So this is glycine. This is the zwitterion form here. And we have two pKa's that are standard for all amino acids that always refer to the protonation and deprotonation of the amino group and the carboxylic, carboxylic acid group. So here's the zwitterion form, the uncharged form. pK1 refers to the protonation of the carboxylic acid group. Okay? It's the pKa that when you're doing a titration happens first. That's why it's called pK1. Okay, so if we're doing a titration of glycine, we hit this pKa for the carboxylic acid group. For glycine, it happens to be 2.34. Okay? And then at pK2, we start deprotonating the amino group. Okay? So when we get very basic, this hydrogen group on this NH3 comes off and becomes NH2. So we get a second pKa. And because that pKa happens second during the titration of glycine, we call that pK2. So pK1 always, for an amino acid, pK1 always refers to the ionization of the carboxylic acid group, and pK2 always refers to the ionization of the amino group, standard for all amino acids. Okay? Now, the PI, and we're going to talk about it in this over the next few slides, the, is, refers to the isoelectric point. Okay? We talked about the Zwitter ion as being the P, uh, it's, the, it's the uncharged species, right? It's this uh, it's, it's this species that has no net charge. It's got one positive charge and one negative charge. So this is no net charge. The isoelectric point of an amino acid or a protein even is the pH at which that, say, amino acid also has no net charge. Okay? So if the pK1 for glycine is 2.34 and the pK2 of glycine is 9.6, then the pH, the isoelectric point of glycine, is going to be the pH that's exactly between them, right? That's going to be where you're maximizing, basically, you're not getting too close to this pKa where you're starting to uh, protonate the carboxylic acid group, and you're not getting too close to this pKa where you're starting to deprotonate the amino group. So basically, if you want to identify the isoelectric point of, say, glycine, the place where glycine has, where this species is the predominant species, right? Where there's, you know, there's always going to be some that are coming on and going, but overall the net charge of glycine is neutral. It's going to be the average of the two PK, these two pKa's, okay? The 2.34 and the 9.6, okay? So this is a table from your text. It's telling you the pK1, which is the uh, pH at which you decarboxylate the, we start where, the, where you're titrating this carboxylic acid group, the pK2, where you're uh, titrating the amino group. And for every amino acid, it's unique, right? Because each amino acid has its own intramolecular covalent bonds. I know what you're all thinking. No, you don't need to know them. You don't need to know all these numbers. Having said that, um, there are some amino acids that we're going to be talking about that have ionizable R groups. Okay? The R group, so we talked about this general structure of amino acids, right? Uh, and that's what gives the amino acid its particular flavor. The R group for glycine is just H. The R group for aspartic acid has a carboxylic acid group in it, right? So that carboxylic acid group can ionize. 
Likewise, there are what we call basic amino acids, like lysine and arginine, that can also ionize. And so they have their own PKAs also, okay? I'm never going to ask you to parrot back a PKA to me. But you should understand that basic amino acids, like, and this will come out a little bit in the next lecture, basic amino acids like lysine and arginine are going to have PKAs that correspond to uh, donation of a proton or uh, a proton at basic pH. And aspartic acid, for example, aspartate and glutamate have PKAs on their uh, R groups that are ionizing at acid pHs. Okay? So you should kind of, and this is going to become clear next class, we're going to group the amino acids into bins. There's the acidic ones and the basic ones, and you should know which amino acid those ones and the other amino acids fit in which bin. And if there's an acidic amino acid, well, then it's going to have a pKa on its R group, which is acidic. I answered my question. All right. So you don't need to know the numbers, but pKa's of amino groups and carboxylic acid groups, you should understand that concept. And pKr's, PK groups of R groups, some amino acids don't have them because their R groups don't ionize, right? Uh, alanine is just a methyl group, CH3. It doesn't ionize. It doesn't, methyl groups don't lose protons to become acidic, right? So there's no such thing as an R group for that. Sorry, a PKR for that. Okay. So what we're going to do now is figure out how to do the isoelectric point for a amino acid that has a PKR, okay? Before it was easy. We just had PK1 and PK2, right? So we just took the average of those two charges, right? There was only two of them, so we just took the average of those two. The problem is when you talk about an amino acid that has a PKA on its R group, well, it's a little bit more complicated, okay? So what you do is you basically try to draw out all the forms of that amino acid, okay? Not that you draw it out. And this also gets into questions that I get on the midterms about whether you need to draw. You, don't, you can't draw things out, right? The exams are multiple choice, right? I'm not going to ask you to draw an amino acid. Do you need to know the structures? I ask that you, under, that you recognize the structures. I'm never going to, like, I'm not going to throw up four pictures of something that looks like valine and say, which one's valine? But you should look at valine and leucine and say that one's valine, right? I'm not going to trick you into kind of where there's a bond or something, but you should be able to look at histidine and say that's histidine. Do you follow? Okay. So this is histidine. It's got this imidazole ring on it. This is the, this is the way histidine looks at very, base, at very acidic pH, right? That means when I say very acidic pH, we're talking about pH 1, okay? That means everything that can be protonated on histidine is protonated, right? At very acidic pH, everything that can take a proton has a proton. That means the carboxylic acid group is protonated. That makes it uncharged, right? The O minus is not there. This NH3 plus group is protonated. That means it has a charge. So there's a plus charge here. And on the imidazole ring, this is the PKR, so to speak, of uh, histidine. There's a nitrogen here that can take a proton. It gives or loses a proton at very, very acidic pH. It's going to be protonated. And when it's protonated, it has a plus charge on it. So we add up all the charges on histidine at very low pH, and we get a charge, a net charge of plus 2. Okay? So the charge of histidine at very, uh, at very acidic pH is plus 2. And then we start deprotonating it. And if you had the table, which I would provide for you on an exam if you needed the table to do something like this. The first pK that we pass when we're looking at histidine, we'll look back here. What's here's histidine? Where's histidine? Histidine, here it is. So there's a pK1 of 1.82, a pK2 of 9.17, and a pKr of 6. Okay? So if I was asking you to do this exercise in the exam, I would give you these numbers. Okay? As you're doing a titration, you're starting at very low pH and you're adding base. Well, what's the first pKa we pass? The first pKa we pass is 1.82, right? 
So what happens is at PK, the PK1 at 1.82, we start taking off this hydrogen from this carboxylic acid group. And at pH 1.82, these two species will be equally populated. Can I finish it and ask you a question? Okay, what's your question? Why am I taking, the question is why am I taking it from this one, from this one? Because this is, this, the carboxylic acid group on histidine is the most acidic group. It's the one that most wants to give protons, right? And that ha that's a function of its pKa, right? It has a pKa of 1.82, therefore, when you pass 1.82, that's the proton that's going to come off. It's like saying, why does acetic acid give protons starting at 4.82? Well, that's its pKa, right? So the pKa of this group is 1.82, and so as we transition through this part of the titration, this proton's going to come off. So you're talking about, so the question is about this hydrogen here. Uh, I think it has to do with the double bond to this nitrogen here, that it's only this nitrogen that gives the proton or takes a proton. I presume it has something to do with this double bond here as to why it's this one and not this one. Okay. So, yeah. That's a good rule of thumb. So in the order of taking off the hydrogens goes through the pKa's. So if you have your list of pKa's and you're starting at pH 1, and this is going to be useful when we're doing more complex titrations, or if you're doing more complex titrations, starting at pH 1, you're basically going to add base equivalent and the pH is going to start going up. When you get to pH, which group is going to give its proton first? Well, going back here, it is of 1.82 and 9.17 and 6.00, the lowest pKa is 1.82. Which one's 1.82? It's pK1. It's the carboxylic acid group. So I know now that I should be taking a proton off of here because you know that pK1 always refers to the carboxylic acid group. We defined that, right? So we move from here to here. Now we've got a negative charge here a positive charge here, and a positive charge here. Before we had plus one, plus one, and that's it, a net charge of plus two. Now we've got plus one, plus one, minus one. The net charge of this species is plus one, okay, when you add them all up. Now I'll go back to my table, and the next pKa on my list is six, right? It's the pKr. It's the removal of this hydrogen to this species, okay? So at the pKr at pH 6, this is going to start coming off. So I'd see that in my titration like this. Now I'm adding up my, excuse me, I'm adding up my charges. There's no charge here anymore. This still has a positive charge. This has a negative charge. I have no net charge, okay? Zero. And then my last pKa, if I went back to my table, was 9.17. That is the pK2. That pK2 is always the pKa at which we're talking about this dissociation of this proton. We're making NH3, the amino group, into NH2. Now this species, I've got a COO minus. This is protonated and has no charge. This is deprotonated and has no charge. So the sum net charge of this species is minus one. Okay? The purpose of this exercise was to define which species has no net charge. It's this one, okay? I basically go through all my pHs as I might do my titration and I count up my charges. This one was plus two, this one was plus one, this one was zero, and this one was minus one. This species has no net charge, okay? If I want to identify the isoelectric point of histidine, remember the isoelectric point of your molecule is the pH at which it has no net charge. This is the thing that has no net charge. Remember I took the average before? What I'm going to do now is I'm going to do the same thing, but I'm going to take the average of the pKa's that define this species. It's pKr and pK2. pKr and pK2 are the pKa's that flank the species that has no net charge. So I take the average of pKr and pK2, and that's my isoelectric point. Okay? 
So you may need to kind of draw this out. If you're given the structure of the amino acid and you understand what the different charges are, then you should be able to kind of add up the charges, figure out which one has no net charge, and figure out your isoelectric point by knowing, by having been given the pKa's and doing this exercise. So, um, this is basically the same exercise. How do you calculate the isoelectric point? You define, you determine the pKa's that define the neutral species. You may want to uh, cover these up with your hands. And uh, I've given you the pKa's, right? This 2.19, this 4.25, this 9.67. This is basically done the same way, okay? You identify the uncharged species by adding up the charges. You take the average of the pHs, the pKs that flank that species. Any questions on that? Okay, so a couple quick announcements before I let you go, just because I messed up the Camtasia when I started. Again, the midterm has been moved to October 6th, same time, same place. Uh, oh, the other announcement that I didn't mention at the beginning of the class is that today is office hours, right? Normally it's Thursday. But because I'm away Thursday, we're going to have office hours today. So I will be in the LSB first floor room at 10 o'clock. And I'll be there for an hour. Okay? See you around.